This is Real Talk with the Executive Council of Australian Jewelry. I'm your host, Alex Rivchin. Prior to the emergence of the coronavirus pandemic, the issue of religious freedom in Australia was one of the leading items on the government's legislative agenda and the subject of often intense media scrutiny and public debate. In seeking to reform the laws around religious freedom, the government, in the words of the latest explanatory notes to the draft bill, is aiming to ensure that all people are able to hold and manifest their faith or lack thereof in public without interference or intimidation. And no doubt this issue will again feature prominently once government returns to normal business. So in the meantime, we wanted to launch our new podcast by going through the basics of this issue and why it is so important to the Australian way of life. Joining me to discuss this issue is Peter Wertheim, who has been representing the Jewish community in a diverse coalition of religious groups that have been consulting with government on this issue. And Peter is also my co-chief executive officer at the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. So Peter, take us through the history of this issue. What were the events that brought religious freedom to the forefront of this government's legislative agenda? The conventional wisdom is that it all began with the debate over the same-sex marriage survey and the consequent change to the civil law definition of marriage to include same-sex couples. There were concerns expressed at the time by faith-based bodies that that change would bring about knock-on effects that limit the freedom of faith-based bodies to act and to speak in accordance with their religious beliefs. So the government convened an expert panel to look into that question, and the expert panel received more than 15,000 submissions, which is an extraordinarily high number, indicating a very high level of public interest. And the recommendations and the report of the expert panel were published in December 2018. And one of the recommendations was that there should be a religious discrimination bill which would make it unlawful at the federal level to discriminate against people on the basis of their religious beliefs in the same way that we already have federal laws that make it unlawful to discriminate against people on the basis of their race, their gender, age or disability. So uh, to that event, to that uh, extent, the government brought in uh, a, uh, an exposure draft of a religious discrimination bill, which uh, attracted a lot of uh, submissions and generally seemed to be criticised by both sides of the debate. And then following that, there was yet another uh, exposure draft, a second exposure a draft that was brought down in December 2020, which is the one that is currently before the public. And again, it um, attracted a lot of uh, submissions, a lot of debate, a lot of interest, uh, again, indicating a sharp division of opinion within the Australian public about some of the key questions. Right. But I would say, going back even further, the genesis, the real genesis of all of this discussion have been changes in Australian society itself. If you have a look at the Australian census, say, 50 years ago, you will see that the number of people who answered the religion question as no religion 
was really small. Uh, and then with every successive census after that, every five years, the number grew larger and larger until in 2016, you had 30% of Australians ticking the no religion box in answer to that question. And that indicates, I think, a loss of standing of religion generally in Australian society and the growth of anti-religious feeling, which uh, is partly what's fueling the concerns of faith-based organisations uh, in, in terms of the uh, discussion about the right. draft legislation. Right. And I think for most Australians, this issue is, is also synonymous not only with the marriage equality argument, which you've spoken about, but also the case of Israel Folau, uh, a former rugby league and then later a rugby union superstar, who made certain religious pronouncements on his social media, including listing those groups who, in his view, were destined for hellfire. And so often you have a high-profile case which becomes most associated with an issue, but really the case can be atypical and something of an outlier in terms of its facts. And I'm thinking also of Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, which came to be known as the Bolt Law after the case of Andrew Bolt, even though that case was not at all typical of the sorts of matters that generally arose under that law. So if we leave aside the Falau case, what are the sorts of regular issues that emerge in this area of policy and what sort of behaviour does the law seek to deal with? Well, the concerns uh, that were expressed by faith-based organisations uh, went, I think, beyond the Falau case because there were very few people who really would defend the content of what he said. The, the argument was about whether uh, he had the right to say it, and it got sidetracked into all sorts of arguments about his employment contract and so on. And that really leads, I think, into the much more substantive issues that, uh, that this uh, legislation throws up, and that is the extent to which faith-based organisations can discriminate in favour of their own adherents. If you think about it, religion inherently involves some level of discrimination. Uh, in Judaism, for example, we discriminate in all sorts of ways uh, in terms of who can constitute a, a minyan for prayer uh, and uh, who can be called to the Torah and so on. There's uh, a variety of uh, ways in which religion generally uh, discriminates in favour of its own adherents and in pursuit of its own uh, ethos and beliefs. And that is why under the existing anti-discrimination laws, there are all sorts of exemptions for faith-based bodies. Now, one of the great ironies of the whole thing is that even though this began with, uh, so the conventional wisdom goes, the same-sex marriage de debate, the issues about religious bodies discriminating against people on the basis of their sexual or orientation and so on has actually not been dealt with in this draft legislation. Mm. It's been diverted to another body, the Australian Law Reform Commission, to consider as a separate issue uh, in the context of the current exemptions that exist in the Sex Discrimination Act. Mm. So the that supposedly gave rise to this debate are not being addressed in this draft legislation. They'll be addressed through a separate process. Uh, but coming back to, you know, what's, what, what are the key issues, 
there are genuine issues about uh, actions that can be taken by religious organisations in pursuit of their ethos. For example, uh, religious schools, uh, in terms of who they can enrol, who they can employ, who they can put on their boards of directors and so on, I mean, it's pretty clear that they ought to be able to prefer adherence of their own faith in order to preserve the ethos of those institutions. And then you get um, other faith-based institutions which are also run as charities, for example, hospitals, aged care facilities, retirement homes, clubs and so on. And uh, questions arise as to the extent to which they can prefer people of their own faith in those various areas, in service provision, in employment uh, and in management and control of the organisation. Those are very tricky issues because different considerations may apply for small minority faiths like the Jewish community, for example, uh, to enable them to preserve their ethos uh, when compared to the considerations that might apply to some of the larger denominations which are well-resourced, well-supported by the government and uh, have a degree of, uh, a large degree of uh, public support and acceptance uh, that uh, means that they they shouldn't really be able to favour people of their own faith to the same extent that minority communities might be expected to. Mm. It's not a simple question, but let me just give you an illustration of the important issue from the point of view of the Jewish community. We have uh, a hospital, we have aged care facilities, we have retirement homes, uh, and they all differ in their practices in terms of preferencing people of the Jewish faith. For example, uh, you might have uh, re retirement uh, uh, villages uh, owned by the same organisation, one of which is only for Jewish residents and the other of which is for mixed residents. The, uh, the Jewish the Jewish only uh, institution is there because it uh, is restricted to providing kosher food and uh, has facilities on site and uh, observes uh, Shabbat and the Hagim and so on. You can say the same also about aged care facilities and the hospital. Now, if you ask yourself what what really is the essence of discrimination that the law is seeking to prohibit, it's unfairly disadvantaging people because of a prejudice against those people's beliefs or their race or their religion or some other arbitrary factor. When you're looking at a minority community like the Jewish community and its faith-based institutions, when they preference Jewish people, they're not disadvantaging anybody. Uh, they are simply trying to cater for the needs of a minority community which would not otherwise be met by other institutions in that sector. For example, uh, an aged care home providing kosher food, prayer facilities, observance of the Hagim and Shabbat, for example, would cater for the larger spiritual and emotional needs of Jewish people. If uh, a non-Jewish person were to go there, uh, they wouldn't need any of those facilities. They can be just as well looked after uh, at another facility uh, that is not Jewish and where those things don't exist. They're not being disadvantaged in any way. Whereas a Jewish person who was forced to go to a general facility 
uh, and could not avail themselves of uh, a facility set up by the Jewish community specifically for it, uh, would be disadvantaged because their spiritual and emotional needs would not be met. And you can't really discount the importance of that in the context of people who are ill or aged or infirm. Those uh, holistic needs that go beyond the strict service needs provided by those organisations are very important. They um, have a great psychological and emotional benefit and uh, there's a lot of evidence that uh, they also have therapeutic benefits as well. So for all of those reasons, it's important for the Jewish community to be able to have its own facilities, which were established to a large extent on the basis of uh, donations from within the Jewish community uh, and in some cases don't even get any government support. And that's not disadvantaging anybody. It's not the sort of discrimination that you ought to be looking at prohibiting. It's, it's a positive discrimination that doesn't disadvantage other people. So, Peter, you wrote an op-ed back in January of this year, which was published by the ABC. And in that, you said that like all other numerically small faith communities, the Jewish community in Australia would be very much the poorer if it did not have its own institutions to cater for the needs of its community members. I wanted to ask you, I think you covered it quite exhaustively in your previous answer, but just in real specific terms, if this law is bungled, if the process by which we arrive at a new law um, you know, is in the correct process, um, or if there are no new protections added at all, what would be at stake for the Jewish community? What would it mean in terms of Jewish schools, uh, Jewish hospitals, retirement homes, clubs and associations. And I also want to ask you about the kind of wider issue because in other places you've said that religious freedom really goes to the heart of Australia's free and democratic nature. So I want you to, to kind of embellish on that theme and tell us what you think it means in terms of broader Australian society. Well, if this law is mishandled uh, and if it, it doesn't come out in, in the... Uh uh, in a way that uh, we, we hope it does. What's at stake here is the existing freedom of Jewish institutions and religious and faith-based institutions generally to operate and to express their beliefs and to practice their religion freely as they have done in the past. We are not looking for additional freedoms over and above those which religious and faith-based institutions have enjoyed until now. What all of us uh, want to do is to preserve the existing freedoms that we've enjoyed and the existing uh, uh, latitude in the way faith-based institutions have been able to operate. And that's a really important distinction to remember because these institutions that I've been talking about, schools and hospitals and aged care facilities and so on, are highly reputable institutions. They are governed uh, more generally by a whole range of legislative, regulatory and professional ethical rules that ensure that they cannot operate in a way that um, abuses anyone's rights. And there is no evidence that they've operated in a way that abuses other people's rights. They have an excellent reputation and all the evidence is that they've operated responsibly 
uh, since they were established, which has been, in most cases, for many decades. So there is no reason to limit their freedom of operation and their freedom to give expression to their religious ethos. And this really comes down to the most fundamental issue of all, which is not really a discrimination issue at all. It is a freedom issue, a religious freedom issue that uh, is fundamental to any free society because freedom of religion and belief, freedom to practice your religion, to associate uh, with a, a religious community and so on is regarded internationally as a fundamental freedom. In the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, uh, Article 18 recognises religious freedom as one of the most fundamental of all freedoms because it's inextricably bound together with other important freedoms, freedom of expression, freedom of association and so on. So if you limit religious freedom, you are in effect limiting freedom of conscience, the freedom of people to adhere to their own belief systems, whether they are religious or ideological or philosophical or otherwise, and to live their lives according to their beliefs. Mm. Once those sorts of freedoms become limited in a way that is uh, beyond what is necessary for the safety and um, uh, and the uh, the viability of, of society itself, we are no longer living in the kind of free society that we have been living in until now. It becomes something less than that, and it really does open the door to further encroachments on individual liberties, which are, are, are quite troubling to consider. And we're already seeing some signs of that in cases that have been brought uh, in recent times against people uh, for simply um, doing things that would previously have been regarded as entirely innocent and within their, their, their rights. For example, uh, there's, there's, there was a case... This is a very trivial case, but just a, an illustration. Uh, a wedding photographer in Western Australia uh, was asked by a lesbian couple to do the photographs of their wedding. And he said, yes, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, but in the interest of full disclosure, you should know that I have religious objections to same-sex marriage. I, I just want you to know that. Mm. I didn't want to take your business under false pretenses. Well, um, that photographer was then sued under Western Australian um, anti-discrimination law. And even though one would hope that the case uh, really doesn't have any prospects of success, it illustrates the sorts of uh, things that are, are occurring right now. Right. Would not have occurred a generation ago, mm. which indicate a trend uh, towards uh, a limitation on people's freedom to live and uh, express their views. Peter, I mentioned at the top of the show that you're representing the Jewish community in a multi-faith coalition that has been advocating to and liaising with government on this issue. I wanted to get your view on what has been the mood of your discussions with other faith leaders. Are you finding that interests align on this issue or is there a fundamental difference in how different religious groups see this issue and the outcomes that they're seeking? I think this has been one of the great untold stories of this uh, entire issue. It has brought together faith-based communities who ordinarily um, would not have 
spoken to one another through their, their representative organisations. Uh, so as a result of the commonality of concerns that we all have about encroachments being made on religious freedom, there's an identity of interests to some extent that has brought all these different community representatives together, Christian, Sunni Muslim, Shia Muslim, and of course the ECAJ representing the Jewish community. Uh, and a new respect has been developed, not only because of the common interests that we have, but also because of the regard we have developed for one another's work and for the uh, the quality of the discussion that has occurred. Mm. There is a regard that that, that, that can only develop um, when, when people sit together, talk together, come to understand each other's perspectives and uh, agree on some things and respectfully disagree on others. Mm. Now, on the most fundamental issues, we, we tend to agree and on those sorts of issues that I've outlined about the freedom of faith-based bodies to act and speak in accordance with their religious beliefs and of individuals to, uh, to do likewise, we, we basically have the same sorts of views. We think that people should be able to speak uh, freely about their religious beliefs, but without vilifying anybody, without uh, in any way engaging in malice or intimidation or harassment or or any of those things which we all agree are unacceptable. As a result of that interaction, a new bond has developed that wasn't previously evident. In fact, very often uh, these are organisations that would disagree with one another on a whole host of other issues, particularly on foreign policy issues. And we still do have differences of opinion about those other issues. But there's a new maturity I think, in the relationship in as much as all of those representative organisations have now clearly seen how much more important domestic issues here in Australia where we all live and where we all uh, make a living and where we all bring up our families, how much more important those issues are than the issues on which we disagree about overseas conflicts. And that has, I think, also been something of a game changer in intercommunal relations. It has meant that uh, the, the Jewish community uh, has developed, I would say, friendships and certainly uh, cordial relationships with communities and organisations with whom previously we didn't have any relationship at all or, if anything, it was... Uh, you know, a relationship where we spoke at one another through public discourse of, a, of an acrimonious nature rather than uh, with one another engaging in issues. So even though we all agree that um, there are issues on which uh, our views are unlikely to coincide, uh, the, most, the more important conclusion is that that is less important than the issues that unite us locally uh, about which we all feel very in a very similar way. I'll just give you one small illustration of how that has worked out in practice. Uh, there was one organisation, uh, it's a Shia Muslim organisation, uh, with, with whom, I'll be very honest, we have completely different views on um, 
on foreign policy issues, totally different views. Uh, and yet during the current COVID-19 pandemic, uh, they wrote to me and to other faith community representatives saying that they had a shipment of masks and other equipment coming in. And if we were short, they'd be happy to supply uh, us with uh, and share some of that with us. So, you know, that wouldn't have even been conceivable previously. Mm. And, uh, it's it's uh, happening as a, a not unnatural consequence of, of our uh, warm relationships over this issue. So, you know, even if we don't get anywhere with the bill, even if it, um, it's put on the shelf indefinitely and the government says it's too hard, or alternatively, even if it does go forward and there's further parliamentary inquiries and, and then the, the bill is ultimately defeated, whatever the outcome will be, I think those relationships that have developed will be a lasting benefit to all our communities, but particularly to the Jewish community. Mm. And I remember during the uh, Section 18C debate, the former senator from South Australia, Nick Xenophon, who didn't commit to a position early on, he said that the most compelling thing that ultimately led him to support the position of the Jewish community on 18C was the fact that the Jews and Arabs were on a unity ticket on that issue. So I think it says something for the importance of coalition building in its own right. And there's a further, there's a further illustration, if I may, and that yeah. is that uh, in the context of uh, the Religious Discrimination Bill, there have been several joint letters written by uh, faith community representative organisations to the Prime Minister and to the Attorney-General. And in the drafting of those letters, there have been occasions when the Jewish community and the Muslim community uh, had a slightly different view to the views of the Christian denominations. And, uh, and once we explain why, uh, the joint letters uh, ultimately excluded um, the things we were objecting to. Uh, and again, that's an indication of the respect and the regard with which these communities have, uh, have operated together. Peter Wernheim, thank you very much. A pleasure. Tune in to our next episode of Real Talk with the Executive Council of Australian Jewry.